Okay, we uh, have two Bible readings this morning. Our first one is from, um, here's the American in me, Isaiah, or Isaiah 53. Um, if you don't have a Bible and you would like a Bible, I'm sure the Lakes would love to give you one. Right, Dave? Yep. Wonderful. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, um, starting from verse 1 this morning to verse 12. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us has turned up to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth, but oppression and judgment he, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the tr transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, and through the Lord make, makes his life an offering for sin. He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities." Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercessions for the, for the transgressors. And our second Bible reading is from Luke 26, 3, 23. Starting at verse 26. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on the, his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it to, behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. The time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. 
The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, thanks, Jenny, for reading, and um, thanks again so much to all of you for having me here. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Uh, But uh, as we begin uh, this morning, there's a very real question uh, that I want to ask you, uh, and it's related a little bit to what I said earlier about assurance. Uh, And that question for you is, do you ever struggle with assurance in the Christian life? There may even be some of us here for whom that question goes a little bit deeper. Do you struggle to know how you ever could have assurance in the Christian life? For example, do you ever find yourself asking, how can someone know that they have a relationship with Jesus? How can they know that they've been forgiven? Know that when they stand before God, that he will welcome them with open arms. Can we ever have actual assurance about things such as these? Or do we just do our best, cross our fingers, hoping that God, if there's a God, will look favorably on us when our time comes to die. Now, I share these with you because these were some of my questions for a year or so before I became a Christian. Uh, I had heard the gospel before, living in Northern Ireland will do that for you. Uh, But no matter how good that news of Jesus' death for my sin may have sounded, the problem for me remained the same. How could I have assurance that this was really true for me? As we enter Luke's gospel narrative this morning, uh, what we find is Jesus in his final hours. Over the last few years, he has taught everyone who would hear him about God's coming kingdom. Uh, He's healed countless sick and performed many miracles. He's announced his coming death several times to his very confused disciples. He has been condemned to death in a mock trial by the religious leaders who hated him. And now, after having been whipped to within a few inches of his life, we find him walking the path to the site of his crucifixion. So weak from that flogging that another man named Simon is forced to carry his cross for him. And so, from the get-go, we are confronted with what seems to be quite a significant roadblock to the assurance that we can be forgiven, that we can have a restored relationship to God. And that roadblock is that God's chosen one was rejected and killed. Now, amongst the large number of people following Jesus to his death, there were some mourning women. Uh, Now, these 
Women weren't necessarily Jesus' disciples, although they were also present. Uh, but actually, it was an old custom of the Jews to have professional mourners at the death of family or perhaps friends. Uh, these women were those who would weep for the dying or the deceased uh, as recognition of the tragic event and as a way to provide comfort for the family. And yet, despite their function, despite their very particular role here, Jesus, who by all accounts should be long past caring about anyone else at this stage, he turns to address their mourning for him and directs it back to them. Daughters of Jerusalem, he says, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Because soon there will be a time so awful that you will cry out, blessed are those who are childless and have never known what it means to nurse a baby. Now this for us is quite a remarkable thing to say, but even more so in the first century, because childlessness was a dreaded source of shame in the ancient world. This was something that you prayed desperately would not happen to you, and you would mourn deeply if ever it did. And yet, Jesus warns of a time that's coming, a time which is apparently so awful that women just like them, and perhaps even including some of them, a time where they would wish that they never had children at all so that they would experience such things. We're gonna to touch on that coming disaster just a little bit later, but for now, as we consider Jesus' compassionate and measured response, we see clearly, I think, that the words of God's chosen one are a clear warning to these women. Because Jesus says, don't mourn for me as if I am a helpless victim, as if I'm powerless against my captors. Rather, mourn for yourself and how you will respond in the coming days. In other words, I think he tells them, think very carefully about the things you see here today. And then, without much ceremony, the chosen one is nailed to his cross. Uh, all he has for company are two condemned criminals. And yet, perhaps you noticed, as Jesus hangs there, surrounded by those who truly deserve death, as he watches the soldiers divide up his clothes in front of him, as he sees the Jewish leaders who forced his execution, feels the nails in his hands and feet and the rough wood of that cross against his shredded back. His next words seem almost impossible. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Who does that? What sort of person responds that way to people like this? I mean, sure, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you might know that many times Jesus has said to his disciples, forgive your enemies, bless those who curse you, even pray for those who persecute you. And that's fine. You know, that sounds very noble. It's all very aspirational. It's very good. But to actually do it, not even just to do it, to actually mean it when he says it. How can Jesus possibly possess that kind of integrity 
when I had harsher words for the guy who cut me off in traffic last week? How can he be so sincere in his compassion for the people who put him to death? And how can God's chosen one be rejected and killed like this and still pray for the forgiveness of his executioners? Well, the next point gives us the answer, although I think it makes the truth even more astounding, and that is that it was always Jesus' plan to suffer as God's chosen one. It's pretty fair to say, I think, uh, that we come to the Bible with our own expectations and assumptions. Uh, Before I was a Christian, I had heard many, many times that Jesus had died for me. And yet, despite that, for a while, I thought the only way that I was going to find assurance uh, was through a piece of scientific evidence, some kind of philosophical argument that would convince me of the Bible's truth. I was looking for something outside God's word to finally bring it all home. But as it turned out, though, I just needed to come back to the events of the cross again, because though I'd heard about them many times, I had never fully understood them. In verse 35, we find the crowds gathered around Jesus and the criminals so that they can watch the spectacle unfold. It's easy to forget that for most of history, the public execution of criminals was not at all a strange event. And in fact, in some places in the world, it's still not a strange event. For better or worse, most of us are a lot more sheltered from the grim reality of death. But as grim as it was, for some of this crowd, just watching an innocent man die wasn't enough. This was, in fact, the perfect opportunity to ridicule him as well. And you may notice that of all the people who are present, did you see how it's the religious leaders that are leading the charge? He saved himself, or sorry, he saved others, they sneered. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, if he is the chosen one. Then, following after them, we hear something similar from the soldiers, probably as they looked up to the sign that was written above Jesus' head. And they say, if you are king of the Jews, save yourself. Finally then, even one of the condemned criminals hanging beside Jesus decides to join in, despite the difficulty he probably would have had just breathing on the cross. He says, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Uh, I mentioned earlier that we would come back to Jesus' warning of a coming disaster, and we're starting to see why that disaster is coming, and that is because this coming disaster of which Jesus speaks was God's judgment coming for those who were supposed to be his people, the ones who were supposed to be honoring his name and waiting expectantly for his chosen one. But instead, they turned out to be the people who would reject him and put him to death. And Jesus knew this all too well. In fact, this is what he said as he approached Jerusalem a week earlier. You'll see it on screen. It says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. 
The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And sadly, true to his word like always in another few decades in 70 AD, Roman armies would indeed surround and destroy Jerusalem, including the temple. Most of those who hadn't starved to death during the siege of Jerusalem were then slaughtered once the Romans breached the walls. Men, women, and children without discrimination. So can you see now what Jesus meant when he anticipated the words of women just like those who thought they were mourning for him? When he says, these women will say, blessed is the womb that never bore children to see days such as these. And now, just in case we were in any doubt that religious corruption was so bad that God should allow something like this to happen, cast your eyes back again to the religious leaders. Because all throughout the gospel narratives, Jesus has been confronted, challenged, and rejected by them. And we see here, most telling of all, I think, that the ones who are supposed to be leading God's people in holiness, helping stir up their love for him, are totally indistinguishable from pagan Roman soldiers and condemned criminals on death row. God had long been patient with those claiming to honor his name. But with the death of his son, which he knew was to come, that was the final straw for this corrupt religious system. When Jesus says, for if they do these things while the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Uh, I think he's saying that if the suffering of God's chosen one is this severe, what will happen to the nation that rejected and killed him? These dry, dead branches will be destroyed in the fire of God's judgment. And they testify against themselves when they think they are mocking him. When they say, isn't he the Messiah? Isn't he the chosen one, the king of the Jews? Well, indeed he is. And in fact, it is precisely because God's chosen one died that he can give assurance to those who trust in him, that he can say, you will be with me in paradise. By the time I committed to coming to church as an interested non-Christian, uh, I was hearing the good news of what Jesus had done for me again and again, week after week. Uh, over time, I found part of me was softening to the idea. And eventually, I found that I actually wanted to believe it. Because if I could be sure that this was true, then not only could I be real and honest about how imperfect and how broken I really am, but I could also know that there was a way to actually deal with it, that there was a way to deal with that sin and rebellion against God, which really defined the way that I wanted to live on my own terms. It could fully and finally be dealt with instead of just suppressed, pushed down, and ignored. But in the middle of this internal struggle I was having, uh, one very normal week at church, 
uh, we were singing a hymn about what it meant to surrender to Jesus, to fully and finally let go of your own ability to be good enough or to make things up to God, to simply let Jesus be the savior that you really need. Uh, And so as I sang along with everyone else, I found the most unexpected of things was happening. And that is, I understood the good news of what Jesus had done to me, done for me, clearly for the first time. As it turned out, I never received that extra piece of evidence I thought I needed. There was no philosophical argument that could convince me. But it was more like I could suddenly see clearly the truth that was in front of me the entire time. And that is that Jesus' death on the cross, that that was the plan all along. Jesus' death was not, as some would say, uh, some kind of misfire. It was not a change of plan, some kind of last resort, or simply one option out of many ways that we might come to know God. But it turned out that Jesus knew exactly who I was and how irreparably I'd failed to live a good life. And he knew that the only way to save someone like me from the punishment I deserved was to take the punishment himself. And so what that meant for me was that until this point, I was struggling to find assurance because I was always looking for that assurance in myself. Without even realizing it, I desperately didn't want to let go of my own strength and my trust in my own abilities and find assurance in him. But finally, that moment, everything clicked home for me. Now, just a little bit earlier uh, in Luke's gospel, Jesus quoted from our first reading, which uh, Jenny read for us a little while ago, and that was Isaiah chapter 53. Now, what Jesus said when he quoted Isaiah was that what was written about me is reaching its fulfillment. And there are indeed many amazing things in Isaiah 53, but I'll give you just a couple of them. Here's one. It says this. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? But how about this? It also says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. The physical pain of the cross wasn't what made it so awful for Jesus. Did you know that? Actually, it was spending those hours feeling the weight of the judgment of God in his own soul. It was feeling the weight of every sin, past, present, and future that was to be forgiven and that needed paid for. And Jesus paid for it all himself. I don't even think that we have the capacity to know what the weight of that judgment felt like for him in those hours. But we do know that it was enough to make God himself sweat drops like blood in the garden of Gethsemane not long before. But amazingly though, in the midst of all this, and even though 
This man couldn't possibly have understood everything about Jesus. We see something remarkable from one of the condemned criminals hanging beside him. We see someone who cannot help but be captivated by the suffering servant who bears the cross willingly beside him. You might remember I said earlier, it's surprising one of the criminals would bother to mock Jesus, given how difficult it is just to breathe and speak on the cross. Well, what this next one says is even more amazing. Because despite him being in a position where you would expect him to be consumed with his own suffering, there is something about Jesus that stirs within him and he just can't remain silent. He asks the other condemned man who mocks him, don't you fear God because you are under the same sentence? And we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. In opposition to everyone else who opens their mouth in this passage, he uses some of his final words to declare Jesus righteous. More than that even, he confesses his own guilt and declares himself deserving of the hideous fate which he suffers. And so, it is in that most pathetic and humble of conditions that he turns to Jesus having absolutely nothing to offer except the recognition of his sin and desperate need for mercy. And he pleads to God's chosen one, that suffering servant beside him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man believed Jesus would inherit the kingdom which he promised was coming. And more than that, he believed that all those who trust in him can bring nothing to offer except the sin which they so desperately need forgiven. These aren't the words of a dying criminal just hedging his bets and hoping for some last minute credit before he meets his maker. No, I think these are the words of one who came to believe fully that God had come to save people just like him. And so what could be sweeter then? than to hear the words of God himself as he turns to you in your hour of most desperate need, and he says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. I can't really imagine the comfort it would bring in your dying moments to know that you are truly free of that punishment you deserve. But one day, I'll very likely know firsthand and so, my friends, what I want to say to you is that God's chosen one was a suffering servant who came for people just like you and I, in the same way that he came for people like this criminal. You know, we might like to think of ourselves as a little bit superior to someone who is on death row. We might like to think of ourselves as good people by comparison. And yet there's an old and a very wise saying which goes like this. It says, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And it means that whether you are an upstanding member of the community or whether you're an inmate on death row, when Jesus' life is the standard of good, every one of us is exposed as failures before him. 
when every ugly thought, word, and deed is laid bare for him to see. And so I think our encouragement this morning uh, is not to find ourselves numbered among those either who mock Jesus or simply turn away from him because they think they don't need him. Why don't we be honest enough to recognize that we are indeed far from meeting at God's perfect standard? Let's be bold enough to recognize that no matter what image of ourselves we may like to project out to the world, that deep down we know how often we say things, do things, and think things that we would never want anyone to ever find out about. Let's recognize that in this narrative, we are at best that guilty criminal who knows they are guilty and desperately need forgiven. And so, as I mentioned just a little bit earlier, it is my hope and my prayer for all of us that whether or not you're a Christian, whether or not this is the first or the thousandth time you have heard this passage, that you would let Jesus take that burden of sin away from you. So that perhaps in your hour of death, and indeed every hour until then, you can be free to live full lives in joyful, debtless service to him. I'm going to close with this very brief story, which I had to add in last minute, uh, because I got a really unexpected example of precisely this kind of assurance on Thursday. Uh, a few of us from the Moore College team had the pleasure of joining the seniors group during their meeting on Thursday morning. Uh, there were 30 or 40 people there. It was a great turnout. Uh, and it was such a blessing for us to see God's people in the later stages of their life, meeting regularly to love and support one another. I even had a conversation with one individual where they shared some of the hardships that they'd faced in their life. They had seen heartbreak, the death of several loved ones, and indeed now they were facing declining mental health. And yet through all of that story, their resolve was firm, and it was fixed on the same point that it had always been during their life. And they ended that story by telling me that the Lord has been good to me. But as encouraging as that one moment was, what I think really struck me about that morning was when we stood to sing that great old hymn, which many of you will know, I Stand Amazed. Uh, and some of you may know there's a line in that hymn that says, when with the ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see, t'will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. And as I stood there, and I heard those voices of older saints around me, I found myself trying and feeling a little bit like I'm doing now to stop the tears from rolling down my face. Because what I heard in that moment was the absolute assurance of those seniors who love the Lord, and in some cases are nearing the end of their time on this earth. And in that moment, what they did for me unknowingly 
was they actually helped me, I think, to relive that same experience, that same first moment where I felt the assurance and understood in the depths of my soul what Jesus had really done for me. And so as I stood there singing along with them, I found myself joining with countless believers through the ages, including people just like that condemned criminal that we read about. And I truly experienced again what it meant to find full assurance that one day I will be with Jesus in paradise. And it is the same assurance he holds out to every one of us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for doing what none of us would ever have thought to do. We thank you for sending your own son, the chosen one, to live and serve and die in our place, to take the punishment which none of us was able to repay. And we pray, Father, that you would make that truth, that you would make that assurance real again in our hearts. Let us feel the weight of sin that's lifted from our shoulders and help us to know and love and serve your son, Jesus, every day of our lives. And it's in his name we ask all of these things. Amen.